0: This week's episode of This Week on Broadway is being supported by ExpressVPN.
1: David walked into the valley with a stone clutched in his hand.
2: He was only a boy, but he knew someone must take a stand. There will always be a valley, always mountains one must scale. There will always be perilous waters which someone must sail. Into valleys, into waters,
1: into jungles, into hell. Let us ride, let us ride home again with a story to tell. Into darkness, into danger, into storms that grip the night.
0: Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 12th, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, Michael, you spent, uh, you know, two or three hours with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda this week, didn't you? (laughs)
2: And company, I just loved loved loved, loved the movie of Hamilton. I thought they did a beautiful job with it. It's amazing to think that um you know I believe it was all now what word do we use you know do you still say filmed yeah, for, for lack yeah. of another word um yeah the
0: the, uh, the people in Hollywood that make movies- still call it filmed, even though it's not actually on. Uh, you know, a a, a a a piece of film. It's digital now.
2: Right. I guess you could say shot, but. <laughs> and in this Some show, people say
0: captured, but I feel like it's <laughs> so pretentious when photographers say, oh, I captured this moment, you know, yeah. uh, and nice capture. Uh, it's nice picture. Nice, you know. <laughs> so, well, I guess,
2: yeah, I guess we can get a worse. Uh, we can get used to film as a, you know, a wonderful word that may be archaic now, but it has a rich history. And so we can just kind of reprogram our minds that it means uh, something more general. Uh, As I said, you could say shot, but, um, (laughs) and actually, in the case of this show, that certainly would be appropriate.
0: (laughs) 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 So, I think it was... Did you know that they threw away three of every four shots? They filmed it four times, so, in essence, what we're seeing is only Uh, uh, one shot of the four shots, so they
2: did throw away the shots. Oh, okay, so... the. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's great yeah i thought it was beautifully edited and the, the camera work was magnificent and it's amazing to think that uh i don't believe i could be wrong i don't believe disney was on board at the time
0: no 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 disney that, was just a recent they they sold it to disney after it was finished and, com- and completed
2: right so this was something that i guess was financed by the producers uh and in fact uh, tom tommy kale who is the director of the show i noticed was listed as one of the producers at the end um so that was smart on his part <laughs> uh considering the you know incredible success of the show and of this movie and uh uh that was that was great foresight on on their part and many people are discussing you know, whether this will lead to big changes in, in that way. Uh, until now, we've only had archival videos of most shows that are viewable only uh, as, you know, research tools, theoretically, at the Lincoln Center Library as part of the Theater on Film and Tape program. Mm. And then, of talk- course, uh, yeah, I'm sorry? I was going to say we should talk about that for a second because this, there's this, like,
0: online f- petition or movement or something like that to get Lincoln Center to release all of those things, as though Lincoln Center has the right to release them, but they don't, and yeah. they're not really, you know, we we can talk about that. But what else were you saying?
2: Oh, yeah, no, well, we can, yeah, we can talk about that now. I, I, uh, I yeah, I, I think they just don't realize that all of the <laughs> contracts would have to be retroactive. Oh, not to mention, it's not going to
0: be the quality of Hamilton. I mean, right. it's basically, you know, we've all, right. s- uh, I'm sure the three of us, if I shouldn't say we all, but I'm sure the three of us have sat in Lincoln Center and watched shows, and you know they're they're not high quality. They're just you know basically a camera in the back of the thing and press record.
2: Yes, and I know they've improved. I've heard they've improved over yeah. the years. Yeah, they uh, from the uh, wasn't was Chorus Line basically considered the first one? Oh no no no!
1: A very obscure Japanese musical called Golden Bat. <laughs> 1970 was the first one. I cannot believe we haven't had a whole show on Golden Bat. <laughs> there's still time. No, the, I, I, I still recall Betty Corwin um, when she told me that, looking a little embarrassed. But it was just, you know, a test case just to oh, see if it was possible. So that was 1970. So that's uh, five years before Chorus Line. Um, but still, yes, there's no question that um, technology was a little um, primitive in those days. But, you know, we have to look at this glass is half full rather than half empty. Oh, I mean, yeah. really, especially um, when I did my book about the most valuable players of each season, um, I named Betty Corwin the most valuable player of the 86-87 um, season because on a Friday afternoon, she got a call from Madeline Guilford. That's Jack Guilford's wife, who was one of the producers of Brags, and said, Betty, we're closing tomorrow. Can you get a crew here? Hmm. Um, it's August. Um, Madeline, um, it's Friday afternoon. Everybody's left town. I have to deal with four unions. Um, I don't think, see, I can do it. Oh, Betty, please. And she did it. And so there's a a, a recording of rags up there. Uh, and that's pretty amazing under the circumstances. Uh, so, so yes, indeed, uh, they may not be uh, terrific, um, all of them, but I think they now use four cameras. I think I heard that.
2: Yes, I have. Heard, that's what I alluded to. I have heard mm. that they that they have certainly made st- great strides in in that area. But regardless, uh, I mean, my point was just that uh, the commercial, uh, filming of shows has been quite limited, uh, uh you know, right right until the present day. And uh, recently, we've had a, a rash of um, a wonderful rash of more of them. I guess uh, often from london where they where the uh apparently the costs are much Mm -hmm. much lower but anyway uh because hamilton uh this movie has done so phenomenally well and been so incredibly well received uh people are talking about uh, you know new people looking at the business models again and and maybe having when theater returns having uh really serious, intense meetings with all the unions and figuring out a way uh, to make them happen more often. And I think that would be wonderful. Uh, of course, nothing will replace life theater as, as long as we are still able to experience it. Um, but uh, it's great to have really state-of-the-art, wonderful Uh, visualizations, uh, pictorializations, movies of these shows. And uh, yeah, just just briefly, I I thought this Hamilton, to bring it back to that, was so well done. I also felt that it was the third time I had seen the show. I saw it once off Broadway, once on Broadway, and then this movie. And I, I did like it much more the third time, even uh, as much as I liked it the first two times, I liked it even more the third time. And I think that's primarily because uh, there's so much in Hamilton. There's so much information. It's so uh, dense and the the words come at you so quickly that just by repeated viewings, you you pick up more. And then also, um, uh, I suppose, having close-ups helps even uh, a little bit in terms of just being able to um, get the words more because you see people's faces closer and and their lip movements. And it might only be a slight difference, but every little bit helps. Um, Because I have spoken to several other people, um, including my sister, who said she loved it. But there were quite a few times where she had trouble getting the words. And we both mentioned one uh, place in particular is the, the first time I think it is that David digs sings in the role of Lafayette Mm. or or raps in the role of Lafayette. Uh, First of all, it's so fast. It's one of the fastest moments in the whole show. And uh, plus he's got that accent. (laughs) So we, uh, you know, neither of us got any of that and actually i i fortunately have the cast album here in in hard copy form on cd and i pulled it out and uh opened up the booklet
0: (laughs) well (laughs) i was just going to say say that so many people are commenting that there are you know second third and fourth they're turning on the captions absolutely right turning on the captions so that they can see it on the screen at the time and it's helped so many people who are not repeated viewers or listeners of this understand it. My wife's sister uh, uh, had seen uh, Hamilton in the theater once, and she was like, "Oh, it was okay." Mm. And We're like, "Really?" And then we got her to watch it on Disney Plus because she's a fan of all things Disney, and mm-hmm. uh, and all of a sudden, the Hamilton thing is a Disney thing, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and so now she's watching, and she's like, "Wow, this is really once the words matter." Who said mm-hmm. that? What's it? Mm. <laughs> the words matter so much, but the captions are really, uh, are really fun. Uh, I, my repeated, my my family seems to have Hamilton on a, on a loop, in an endless loop, uh, playing in the <laughs> living room. Uh, and as I pass through every now and then stop and watch a scene, there are so many things that I've missed, and I've seen Hamilton four or five times. Mm. Um, I never realized the, the various different scenes that... Um, King George is in, uh, that where he doesn't, he's not really, uh, the the whole, yeah. yeah you ain't never gonna be president now the Davy Diggs uh, song yes uh, where I, I didn't even realize that King George and Groff was was in that and it's hysterical it's really really <laughs> fun and there's so many interesting things if you watch uh, Ariana Tabo's um, the bullet throughout the whole show yes. and now you can you can just watch her during one whole viewing and see like whoever <sighs> she touches dies. Uh, and it's really, it's so smart what Tommy Cale did uh, in staging this show. Just really wonderful.
1: I honestly believe it's one of the ten best uh, directorial feats that I've ever seen in a musical. I would agree with that. I would agree with that.
0: It's also funny, as I mentioned last week, that Hamilton has become, you know, a, a, again, a, not be, not for the first time, but you know, reemerged as. Uh, Part of our popular culture, where so many people who are not typically theater goers are really paying attention to this and talking about it, I was listening to uh, two guys on a politics podcast talk about watching Hamilton, and they were uh, one was saying he was didn 't realize that Hamilton was such a such a dog, such a womanizer first you know he you know he looks at uh, Angelica and then Eliza. And then he sleeps with Peggy, and the other guy says he doesn't sleep with Peggy. He goes, Yeah, oh, yeah. In the second act, he sleeps with Peggy. And he was like, Oh, that woman's double cat, such a different character. Ah. <laughs> mm, <laughs> ah. So they missed a lot of the double casting, the, the David Diggs uh, double casting Lafayette, uh, and uh, some of the other things where people aren't used to in film, you just get another actor.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, And the thing is, I've often wondered when people bring children to the theater, uh, if it's hard for children to understand the concept of doubling, do they assume the person they saw a few minutes ago in one costume is the same person uh, that they see a little later in a completely different costume? Or do they say, oh, that's two separate people? I've often wondered that. So, anyway, um, any of you who have children, you're taking to the theater uh, and seeing shows that have uh, a lot of doubling in it, would you let me know if indeed your kids understood it was doubling or just assumed it was this, uh, what we're talking about here?
2: Well, anyway, to your last point, James, I, yeah, I think the show has really proven to us all now that it really is a game changer in in the way of such previous shows as West Side Story, Hair, and Rent, mm, yeah. like a major, major paradigm shift i would say uh and that's that's quite an achievement for everyone concerned
0: interesting that rent and hamilton have the same producer yeah are such game changers uh oh yes oh yeah jeffrey sellers uh all right so also uh michael you got a chance to see bedlam's uh Bedlam had a, it's a theater company here in New York, an off Broadway theater company, had a reading of Entertaining Mr. Sloan. So tell us
2: about that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. This is one of the best of these that I've seen lately. Um, And, but also, I would have to say it was the best of the three productions of that play that I've seen. I saw the one off Broadway with um, Chris Carmack and Alec Baldwin and Jan Maxwell. And, I just, uh, there were wonderful elements in it, but I just didn't think it gelled uh, for whatever reasons. And also that was a very troubled production. I don't know if y'all remember, there was conflict uh, between um, Ms. Maxwell and Mr. Uh, Baldwin (laughs) Uh, that got into the press. So maybe that bled into the performances. Um, And then I had seen a... uh, unfortunately very poor off off broadway production somewhere i don't even remember any details uh because i disliked it so much and i'll never forget i may have told this story before that adam feldman um the critic was sitting right in front of me uh and at one point <laughs> he um he uh took his uh, his program uh it wasn't a play. I don't think it wasn't a playbill because it was an off-off Broadway show, but it was you know some kind of a printed program, and um, it said, of course, "Entertaining Mr. Sloan on the on the front page, and he took his pen and he drew a circle around the word "entertaining" and then put a line through it. <laughs> <laughs> I love Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was very clever. Uh, but this one was really very, very well done. Uh, it was uh, Tuesday, July 7th, and it was directed by Annabelle Capper um, for the Bedlam uh, Theatre Company. And the cast was Dan Amboyer Boyer as Sloane. Um, Miss Capper herself as Kat, I believe it's pronounced Kat, K-A-T-H. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Maurice Jones as her brother Ed and Nigel Gore as, as their father Kemp. Um, it was very, very creatively done as far as the, uh, the presentation with the, uh, um, I don't, I'm not sure if it was Zoom, but it was one of those types of. Yeah, it was a Zoom it was zoom okay yeah, was and zoom. Uh, they would do things like if um, there's one point where like a character has to hand something to another and uh, and the the character who was handing the item would take it and and move it towards the <laughs> towards the camera you know of the computer and then the other character who was taking it would would take it. Uh, So I guess they both had the item in their homes and little things like that just made a big, and there's uh, um, one point where Sloan has to attack uh, Kemp and they did that just, you know, kind of miming it in a way that, that certainly made the point Um, really very well done. Everyone's accent was absolutely spot on to my ears as far as I, I'm not sure if, Actually, I'm not sure if any of them are actually British. I know Dan is not. Um, the others, I'm not sure. Actually, Annabel Capper says she trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, so I think <laughs> uh, that that's got a hard. lot of West End credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really, very well done, and it. Uh, I, I was um, amazed again at. To think about the effect that this play must have had when it was first done in 1963, um, in let's see, uh, uh, well, it was it actually premiered in '64 on the West End, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> then the Broadway production was at the Lyceum, opened on. October 12th, 1965 and closed after 13 performances. So this was really quite a hot potato
1: in those days. And, um, Well, of course, one of the reasons is we are talking about essentially a hustler uh, who comes in and changes people's lives because there's more than one person who wants to sleep with them. What's really ironic is even though it ran 13 performances, Sheila Hancock, uh, who played Kath, uh, got a Tony nomination, which is pretty impressive. What's also impressive is the fact that um, Terrence Radigan was one of the people who put up money to move it to the West End. Now, Terrence Radigan was the type of playwright that everybody started criticizing once John Osborne uh, started mm. writing uh, Look Back in Anger and plays like that. And Joe Orton was definitely of the angry young man type. And the fact that he, Terrence Radigan, would put up money for somebody who represented the new guard, and people were criticizing Terence Radigan as being all done and not worthy of uh, being heard from anymore is pretty impressive, pretty impressive indeed. But there's no question that this was not a Broadway play for 1965. And that was much, much too um, crazy for the uh, average theater theatergoer uh, who came to Broadway. But in London, yeah, there was a little more adventurous feeling there. And uh, under those circumstances, entertaining Mr. Sloan did well there, but not here.
2: And what a coincidence! I I'm just remembering that I guess just last week I had mentioned something for everyone. Yeah, right. The movie "Something for Everyone" as a, a yeah. prime candidate for musicalization, and there are great similarities. <laughs> oh, I'm there in, in the plot. Uh, sure. So, you know, I wonder if that was something that. Uh, was in their minds when they went to do something for everyone. But either way, I I'm really glad that I saw this bedlam uh, virtual production of entertaining Mr. Sloan, because it gave me even a greater appreciation for the play than I'd had before. And the cast was so, so wonderful. Really. Everybody was great. Dan and Boyer was just perfect. And this Annabelle Capper, um, she, really had that character down a friend of mine who watched it said what he really appreciated was that she made it quite clear that is that this woman is very very unstable um and very 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 needy uh and but as I say across the board everyone was wonderful Maurice Jones and Nigel Gore as well and very well directed and um as long as we're going to continue to have these Virtual presentations, uh, you know, while we can no longer attend live theater in large groups, um, it's really appreciated when they're so, so well done as this one was. So let's talk about
0: Bedlam for just one minute. Um, uh, This uh, uh, Mr. Sloan, entertaining Mr. Sloan that you uh, saw the other day, is part of a series uh, of, uh, it's a benefit reading for uh, Black Lives Matter and Equal Justice Initiative, um, and they're doing readings like this every Tuesday. So Bedlam is a high-quality company. We've seen in- incredible, incredible work coming out of Bedlam uh, for uh, for many years. I think they're about 10 years old or so. I don't know off the top of my head, but I think about 10 years old or more. But every Tuesday they're going to be doing this. You can find them at bedlam.org, B-E-D-L-A-M dot org. And every Tuesday they're going to have another reading and, you know, if past... Uh, Past performance is indicative of future performances. I would think that these are very worthwhile to check out. Uh, So go to their website and check out Bedlam. They're a a great group of people that are doing incredible, incredible work. And, uh, I mean, in this time of... You know where the end of July marks a uh, the end of the United States federal government's uh, support of uh, unemployment insurance. Right now, we don't we don't see anything further than that. These people at Bedlam are <laughs> putting their art and effort and time and everything into raising money for others. So I think this is really it's really worthwhile to check out and see what they are doing. Uh, during last week's show, um, we talked about uh, things that should be musicalized, and uh, Jeff Hickman wrote in one of our listener, faithful oh. listeners, yeah. and uh, Jeff um, talked about "It's a Wonderful Life" uh, as a as a property that should be musicalized, and talk. And I said, "Oh, you know, actually, I, I, I've." known a number of productions of It's a Wonderful Life being musicalized. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Walter Willison wrote one called Wonder, Wonderful That's Life, right. the Musical. That's right. Uh, Sheldon Harnick has mm-hmm. uh, uh, Joe one. Joe Proposo. Yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Paul McCartney's actually had been working on one. I don't know if he's still working on it or whatever happened with it. But And I've also seen a reading of A Different Wonderful Life by other folks um, as well. So there's a number of those. But um, one of the things that Often hangs up uh, it 's a wonderful life is that people think of it as a christmas only mm. type of thing, but you know it 's actually true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah but and, and it stops commercial producers and various the- theaters from doing it the other three seasons of the year uh But, uh, you know, if there are Wonderful Lives out there, go check them out. I I really adored Walter Willison's uh, production of Wonderful Life.
1: I've only seen the Joe Raposo one, and it was done in Paper Mill, I would say, 15 Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, I've also seen it in Indiana at a dinner theater there. Maybe not a dinner theater. I don't recall getting a meal. Anyway, um, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> if it was, I guess it wasn't memorable. But um, but yeah, and at Arena Stage, I recall oh, seeing yeah? it as well. Um, so I've seen it three times in those three places, but notice none of them is New York City. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, producers just don't want to bring it in. And that's a good theory, James, that maybe it is the fact that um, it seems to be a Christmas um, property, even though it really isn't. Yeah, so it's,
0: um, it's one of those things where uh, – what was the other thing we uh –
2: Here's Love. Uh,
0: there, uh, no, there was another show that everybody thinks is associated with Christmas, but it's uh, not really... Oh, I, I see. Think, I can't think of it off the top of my head, that people don't do because they think it's a, it's a roundabout. Did, was it a holiday or... What oh, I th- um, Sort of feel like... Holiday Inn? I mean, Holiday Inn. Yeah. Holiday Inn that people uh, associate
1: it with Christmas and yeah. and that it's not really... A whole Christmas, (laughs) even though plenty of holidays are mentioned in it. Um, Yeah, you know, it's it's really too bad Um, when you really go back to Here's Love. And of course, Broadway has changed tremendously in uh, close to 60 years. We're talking about here. But still, isn't it amazing that Here's Love, which stunk, um, (laughs) ran more than 300 performances starting in October? Uh, and lasting till July. Mm. Um, I mean, and again, a Christmas show, and yet there were audiences to some degree for all those performances, even though it had nothing to do with Christmas. So, Right, so actually I think maybe that that's a
2: little bit of a, a counter-argument against what James is saying. And I, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I personally think that... Um, uh that that wonderful life never was considered that great an adaptation so and if it was world class on the level of you know fiddler on the roof or she loves me that that maybe it would be a hit year-round anyway but we'll never know
0: all right so uh speaking of last week's show peter
1: we had a trivia question could you uh let us in on the answer Oh, whoa. Um, You know, uh, the person uh, who got it last uh, was Greg Christensen, who said he didn't think it was so hard at all. Well, Hmm. of course, it took him till Saturday to do it, but that's another story. (laughs) All right. (laughs) An actor and director worked on a musical for which the actor won a Tony, but the director wasn't even nominated. The two had worked together before in a film about a famous theatrical family. But for that movie, the director wasn't the director, but the writer in the film. The actor got the chance to play a scene from a play he'd do in total. um, And after he got his Tony win, who's the actor, the director and what's the musical in the play. We're talking about Camelot. In which written Richard Burton won that 1960-61 uh, Tony as Best Actor in a Musical, and director Moss Hart was not nominated. Five or so years earlier, Burton had performed Hart's Words in Prince of Players about Edwin and John Wilkes Booth, in which Burton played Edwin and did scenes from Hamlet which would be his next Broadway role in 1964. Tony Janicki, after finishing third the week before, regained his first place crown. Steve Bell, Richard Carey, Brigadude, Mike Meany, Robert Lobiondo, Ingrid Gammerman, and Greg Christensen, bringing up the rear, uh, were, the first, um, were the ones to get it. So, this week's question. A few weeks back, I posed a question that involved the Star-Spangled Banner. Hmm. What musical quoted the lyrics from that anthem's entire second stanza in its second act?
0: Hmm. Okay, so if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Sometimes you need to search for things online that you wouldn't want anyone knowing about. Recently, I had to do research on the Cats movie. Certainly, I don't want Michael or Peter knowing that I watched it, so I use ExpressVPN. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home... I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or Optimum or anything. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to advertising companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is also available on all of your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with ExpressVPN, which is rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, express broadway slash broadwayradio. Go to expressvpn.com/broadwayradio to learn more, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting Broadway Radio. So we were talking about uh, what is a good topic for this week, and uh, I think <laughs> Michael, Michael, you came up with this songs we don't songs we love from shows we don't.
2: No, I think it was Peter, but anyway. was it
0: Peter? Yeah. Uh, so, Peter, tell me, you know, kind of describe what your thoughts are here so that we can have a clear understanding of what what we're going to talk about.
1: Well, I think all of us bought original cast albums and we've been a little disappointed with what we hear. And, mm. yet, there's a song here and there that we think is really terrific. And, um, and we tend to put it on repeat in our CD player and um, listen to it quite often while uh, therefore not... Uh, listening to the other songs because once was plenty for them Uh, or at least that's the way it seemed. Uh, Sometimes we do discover a song later on that we didn't notice the first time around, but there are plenty of albums I have. I don't know about you where um, it's just one song that stands out. And that's also the case when I see the show and I'm thinking first and foremost of love never dies. And uh, when I saw it in London, which was really interesting because I went on Tuesday matinee to see Phantom, um, which was pretty full. Um I'm years into the run and uh, that night I went to see Love Never Dies which was pretty empty early in the run and um it, it didn't make much of an impression on me but till I hear you sing once more the phantom song talking about um how he wants to hear Christine uh that he misses her voice and she's taken off um for America and uh so I I think it's really a beautiful song and very interestingly Well, it came um, somewhere in the first act uh, early on when I saw the production that toured America uh, a few years ago. I saw it in Boston on Super Bowl Sunday when the Patriots were playing the Eagles. And it was really interesting to see a woman next to an empty seat, next to a woman next to an empty seat, sort of a preview of social (laughs) distancing, (laughs) because all the men were home seeing the patriots. Considering how the patriots did that day, perhaps they should have gone to see Love Never Dies but considering what love never dies is maybe they did make the right decision, <laughs> but what they uh, did and it was so smart to do was have this be the opening song now. Cause it really is glorious. And um, of course there's nothing in the show that compares to it uh, in any way, shape or form. And uh, but at least we did get one great song out of love never dies. And I don't know if New York will ever see love never dies. I don't know if New York will ever see phantom again, who knows anything at this point, but I do believe it's a glorious song and it certainly fits the the parameters that um, we've set here as uh, a memorable song from a show that really wasn't. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, how about you? Oh, I came
2: up with quite a list. Uh, Just don't know where to start, so I'll just plunge in. Uh, I guess there are a lot, uh, because it's fair to say... uh, if you, if you phrase it as songs I love from shows I don't love, because uh, there are many shows I don't love because of the books or uh, because the scores are, are not consistently good. Um, there's a, there are quite a few in that category, I think. Um, and we've discussed many of them before in other contexts. Um, I'll start with the Scarlet Pimpernel um the score is written in at least two <laughs> two different styles one um a wonderful sort of pastiche period style i would i would describe it as and the other much more modern pop and i prefer i vastly prefer the former uh so in that category i would say storybook as i mentioned before is just an absolutely beautiful song and into the fire um and then also uh that act 2 monologue that percy has she was there that is a yeah. very very gorgeous beautiful romantic song and if all of the score was like that i think scarlet pimpernel might be one of my favorite shows but um frank wildhorn chose to mix the genres and it it there many People are not bothered by that at all. Uh, So I just wanted to state that, you know, I I mean, I I recognize that that um, my feelings are not universal about the difference in styles being a problem. But that is how I feel. So I, I would start with that one.
1: Ironically, uh, Into the Fire was on my list too, Michael. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think it's uh, a wonderful swashbuckling song, and I always refer to it as the 90s version of the riff song uh, from the Desert Song musical that was a big hit way back when. And um, I, I, I enjoyed the riff song. as It's pure operetta, no question about it. But I thought that Frank Wildhorn didn't excellent job in uh, taking the spirit of that and making it into a a, a 90s um, sensation, as far as I'm concerned. And it was wonderful in the show, too, because, you know, again, moving the action forward is always something that people look to do in musical theater. And they started in one country, and they wound up in another by the time the musical number was over, which was great. Another Frank Waltron song I'll go to bat for is uh, Sons of Dixie from the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Um, When Frank uh, told me that he was doing a musical on the Civil War, I expected a book musical. Um, no, it turned out essentially to be a review, and I was terribly disappointed when I saw the New, York, um, New Haven tryout that it was uh, simply a collection of songs. But boy, Sons of Dixie, and what I really love is Sons of Dixie. It's a wrong note. Now, please understand that when I say wrong note, that's a compliment, not a criticism, yeah. just as Richard um, Rogers used to be famous for his wrong note. Um, totally unprepared am i to face the world of that's there's <laughs> something about flattening that note uh in joanna the one that um anthony sings da 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 that mm. note there uh is a wrong note which is so right for the song so right. as a result um i think there's a wonderful wrong note in sons of dixie as well which uh, is a song that certainly got a number of plays on my cd player hmm michael what's next on your list uh, from some of the most famous ones,
2: uh, Phantom is a show that I definitely don't love overall. But um, and this is ironic, one of my favorite songs in it, just as a song, if you take it out of context, is "Think of Me," which I don't like in context at all because I think it sounds so modern with dotted rhythms, yeah. etc. Mm-hmm. And I've always, I'm not sure if he has ever commented on this specifically, but I would not be surprised if uh, it's the case that that was a trunk song previously written. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it may not be. But, previously uh, but written by who? <laughs> well, no, I meant <laughs> I'm talking about by him. I know, for example, that uh, there are some other famous examples that, that, that he has spoken of uh, that's Herod's song. Mm-hmm. from uh, Superstar was originally a a, a a song called "Try it and see um, and i don 't know if that was just a standalone or if that was from a previous project, but he uh, he has been very open about using trunk songs uh, on occasion at least uh, so i 'm not sure if that is one but and i don 't think that the modern sound of it works, especially because it 's supposed to be um, uh, not only is it in a a period musical, quote unquote, but I think it's supposed to actually be um, a, a piece from the opera that uh, Christine is singing, uh, and it certainly doesn't sound like a, a you know something from an opera from the late eighteen hundreds or, or or early well late eighteen hundreds, I guess. Um, so, uh, but I do like it in itself I think it's a very very pretty melody and I also like the lyrics a lot and then all I ask of you um phenomenal yeah beautiful beautiful song uh and then uh it's from lately orchestrated too
1: yeah yeah
2: well you know I I think um it's it's fair to say in general that Lloyd Webber shows uh are beautifully orchestrated um well, when those overall, strings come in I mean yeah, yeah. okay go yeah. on <laughs> um uh from Les, Les Mis miz is a, a show that i can honestly say i don't love overall because i think uh so many of the melodies are are reused too often and i think the storytelling is problematic because they try to tell so much of the story um of the that huge novel a novel so huge that you could really use it as a, a you know a As a
0: doorstop. doorstop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Even the the cast
2: recordings, you know, three-disc recordings can be a doorstop. Yeah. Um, But there are several songs in it uh, that I really love. At the end of the day, I think it's a phenomenal song. And by the way, if you buy the original French uh, concept recording of Les Mis, that is the first song uh they uh because on that concept album uh, they obviously did not feel they needed to tell the whole story of the of the novel so uh that whole what what came to be uh is it actually called the prologue uh the the whole first mm, part yeah. of the mm-hmm. of the show is it finally exists uh you know with look down look down et cetera and uh Valjean getting out of prison uh, and h- him telling us about uh, we lear- learning uh that he was in prison because he stole a loaf of bread and and then him uh going to uh meeting the bishop and that that uh, none of that is in it uh in the on the concept album so at the end of the day is a really phenomenal
1: opener uh, for that french concept album and in fact if you only bought the lp back in the days when they were still making lps Mm -hmm. um of course it's shorter than the cd and that's the opening number of the lp at the end of the day
2: um Oh, well, I actually only have it on CD. Yeah, sure. Was it, no,
1: but my question was, was it one LP or two? I think it was two, but I still think they didn't have um, enough room for everything. So uh, there's no question the LP started with that at the end of the day, or at least the first edition did. Uh, Maybe they. Oh, yeah. And what I'm saying is, so does the CD.
2: I Um, know. Oh, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> un- unless you count the uh, that little da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, I think that's at the beginning. Um,
0: you know, it brings up a good point here that the LP to CD transition gave us a lot more music. And perhaps in, in the future, we sh- could find out, you know, our Lost in Boston's Boston songs, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. what are the best songs that never made it
2: to the CDs uh-huh. and uh, right. things like that. So, um, Michael, so, what were you saying? I'm oh, sorry. just uh, just uh, some others from Les Mis that I really love, even though mm-hmm. I have problems with the show. Are um, well on my own, but I actually think I prefer it the first time we hear that melody when Fontaine sings it as "Come to me, Cosette." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I it's just glorious. love that moment. You bet. Um, uh, Do you hear the people sing? Is a really rousing, wonderful uh, number for the the revolutionaries um, empty chairs at empty tables and bring him home, which is a relatively late addition to the score. That was not on the original cast uh, concept
1: album at all. Mm. Um, well, well, uh, it seems like Since you named so many That uh, you might love um, Lame is a little more than you can't think But anyway uh- oh, No, 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 That's a, that is my point
2: But I could still say that I don't love the show overall uh-huh. uh, But I do
1: think that several of the songs are just
2: really, really beautiful.
1: Back to Lloyd Webber. um, I like only he from Starlight Express. Um, Starlight Express is the only musical I've seen uh, in London on Broadway and Las Vegas. Um, (laughs) Each set was completely different, but um, uh, it was uh, certainly a disappointing experience in each city. But, but Only He is a a, a power ballad uh, that really uh, gets to me. And I still remember when I got the album before I saw the show. And uh, <laughs> I was so impressed with that song that I just put it on um, repeat. And to the point of which that even as I was getting tired, I went to bed and kept it on and fell asleep to it. Now that might be a way of saying that I don't think it's so terrific, but <laughs> believe me, take it from uh, the vantage point of, again, glass full rather than half full rather than half empty. So uh, so I enjoyed that one uh, quite a bit. Um, I remember in 1969... I was married to a woman from Baltimore and we used to go to Baltimore every Christmas and we would come back to Boston where I was, where we were living. And um, of course we would stop in New York and hope to see a show. But of course, Christmas week is the toughest week of the year to get tickets. And we wound up at, jimmy a musical about mayor james j walker which had received terrible reviews and was doing terrible business but because jack warner of warner brothers was producing it well it was going to run forever and and there's no half price booth at this point no tkts and so there we are in line at the winter garden waiting to buy tickets to it because again it's the only show with tickets so Um, And I'm thinking, oh, I have to see this terrible show. I can't believe I'm doing this. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I hear uh, because it was just running forever at these terrible grosses. It was going to run forever. And and then I hear somebody uh, behind me saying it's closing Saturday. And that's when I had to see it, Hmm. the fact that it was closing. Anyway, not a good score, but I love Riverside Drive, which, again, the LP era was so nice. It started the second side, which was so easy to pick up the needle and go back to the beginning of it. Um, So Riverside Drive, a nice little um, cakewalkie soft shoe number. Um, And of course, we have a million songs about New York City and uh, perhaps 100,000 involving certain places in New York City. Um, This, I think, is the only one that deals with Riverside Drive and makes a nice case for going there. Mm -hmm. And it's a rare time that I go there that I don't think about this song from uh, Jimmy, which was a terrible musical.
0: It's best place to find parking, Riverside Drive Oh, good to know, thank <laughs> you uh, oh, Riverside Drive, right. very good place to find parking
2: <laughs> All right, so uh, Michael, what else is on your list? Well, Peter, given your reaction to what I said about Les Mis, you're going to love this next one <laughs> Because um, uh, if we're talking about songs I love from shows I don't love, I could honestly say every song from Mamma Mia Uh, Ah, yeah. If that counts, because I love, love those ABBA songs, but I just think that the show is so witless and silly and nonsensical that uh, that the overall effect of it, seeing it in context, um, if context even applies, (laughs) um, is to me is just almost unbearable. But I will gladly listen to. Any or all of those songs separately, uh, I I see no reason to hear them on the cast album when I can just play my Al- a- my Abba Gold CD, <laughs> uh, which I which I've extolled many times in the past, and I I do that. But that's uh, in the era of the jukebox musical and the uh, catalog musical. Um, there are probably quite a few cases of that, but. Uh, none more obvious than
1: this one That I can think of right at the moment
2: Love the sin, hate the sinner
1: hmm. ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Yeah um, It's so interesting that Mamma Mia has done so well Because um, a lot of people Thought that this was going to be a terrible Terrible experience um, In in getting it on um, Certainly it was done By somebody who had been an assistant Of uh, Tim Rice uh, Way back uh, when And um, and worked her way up the ranks, Judy, somebody, I don't remember her last name, but anyway, um, she certainly, uh, made it happen. And a lot of people did think that it was going to be this enormous bomb. And in fact, the woman who actually wrote the, um, the book, um, Catherine Johnson, I mean, she, she just called her agent one day. I mean, she, she was a moderately successful writer and a single mother and Christmas was approaching and she needed work. So she called her agent and, um, and the agent said, well, you know, uh, this woman, Judy oh, Kramer, that was her Judy name. Kramer, C-R-E-Y-M-E-R. Yeah. Right. Um, was looking for a book writer to put Abba songs into a script, and... Johnson said the agent and I laughed about five minutes, you know, thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. But she met with Judy Kramer and they got along and she um, got the job. And oh, is she glad she did? Because, boy, I mean, this one really has um, done well. And ironically, the story is that uh, we had another musical of an Alan Jay Lerner, Burton Lane musical called Carmelina back in 1979 which was based on a wonderful movie born of Sarah and Mrs. Campbell, mm. uh, which I urge everybody to see in which Telly Savalas is very tender. Now, how often do you hear that? So <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a story that mother Mamma Mia really surprised a lot of people. It's astonished a lot of people. So, um, but I'm, I'm glad you uh, at least like the songs. Um, so um you know, I, I was asked to do a lecture for um, the College Light Opera Company out in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and um, on Rodgers and Hammerstein. So I've been doing a lot of research in Rodgers and Hammerstein, which means that you have to deal with me and Juliet. Uh, this was not their least successful show. Pipe Tree was, if you want to talk about length of run. Um, but, uh, and me and Juliet at least got a little Post action, uh, I think we played in Chicago for a while. But anyway, uh, this was a backstager, and Richard Rogers said, You know, there are so many stories about putting on a show, and it's always about four weeks you rehearse and rehearse, three weeks it couldn't get worse, and all that. But, you know, what about a show that's running? about what goes on there day to day. Well, you know, in a way that sort of sounds a little more boring and granted there was jealousy and uh, there was even attempted murder and they did what they could. Mm. But the other thing too, is the score really is um, as far as I'm concerned, I think a lot of people agree with me. It's their weakest score. Yes. Pipe dream ran less uh, fewer performances, but mm, no um, me and Juliet really does suffer. And yet, And yet there's a wonderful idea in it because Me and Juliet is about a, a show within a show. The Walter Kerr said it was really a show without a show, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, the show within a show was called Me and Juliet and the second act began with you are seeing the people who has attended me and Juliet at intermission. And the song was called Intermission Talk, mm. in which everybody is saying, how, uh, how do you like the show, and what do you think, and so on and so forth. And everybody's talking about the fact that it, uh, they don't like the show, they're disappointed in it, all this kind of business, and they're all convinced that this is the way theater is going. The theater is dying. The theater is dying. The theater is practically dead. So, um, and then people start talking about, yeah, but I had a tough time getting tickets to The King and I, and I had a tough time getting tickets to Wonderful Town, and wasn't The Crucible something? And the point is that um, they all have to admit that the theater isn't dying. And so it, um, you know, that's Oscar Hammerstein for you. I mean, (laughs) if he's going to come up with something that's negative, it's not going to be long before it turns into something positive. Also in the score, I have to admit, um, is a song that really sounds much more like Rogers and Hart. I mean, once Rogers teamed up with Hammerstein, the, the music got more sentimental and um, you should pardon the expression older. There was a youthfulness when he was writing with Hart <laughs> because he was younger. Um, but in Me and Juliet, he has one of his youngest songs, which is That's the Way It Happens. Um, and um, if you don't know Me and Juliet, I do think that it's worth um, hearing at least those two selections. I will go to bed for nothing else in the score, but I will go to bed for them. <laughs> okay. Uh, Michael, any uh,
0: Rodgers
2: and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein make your list? Oh, yeah, but before um – I actually was going to start with the Rogers and Hart one, but before I get to that, I just Peter, do you, are you aware that there's a song that was cut from on the town
1: that was called the intermissions? Great. No, that sounds familiar, but I don't recall it being connected to on the town. So um, anyway, go on. Yeah.
2: It's uh, and I'm not sure how it worked into that, but I'm looking it up right now. Uh, and it says, "Cut numbers ain't got no tears left," which we know, nightclub singer. And uh, I think that was restored at some point. And the intermission's great. Uh, somewhere, uh, this uh, I guess it was a Broadway audience um, hanging out in intermission. And I remember we actually sang it uh, in that Bernstein concert I mentioned that we did with ah. the New York City <laughs> Gay Men's Chorus many years ago. They unearthed it, and uh, the uh, the last line I remember is. Um, well the, the, the audience is gossiping about the show and how they feel about it and the, the, the last two lines are we don't know about the show but the intermission's great <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so uh you can uh read more about this in
0: uh, show tunes. the songs shows and careers of Broadway's major composers by Stephen Suskin oh,
1: oh, talks, yes. talks so about the, it there. one of the great great musical theater historians of our time over any time for that matter. Um, I, his, his research on the sound of Broadway music, which is about orchestrators. And yet he also will tell you where a show tried out and the date that it started trying out. I mean, it's just amazing how much research he had to do to put, um, so he is all definitely one of the great ones.
2: I have, uh, a- the Rogers and Hart song I was going to mention. Actually, I could lead off a, a little subsection here that I've titled "Songs I Love from Shows I Don't Know," and the song is "It Never Entered My Mind" mm-hmm. from a. a- quite obscure Rogers and Hart show called higher and higher. Yeah, I um, mm-hmm. And then some other examples of that are uh, Cole Porter's, you do something to me from 50 million Frenchmen. And uh, isn't it a pity from pardon my English, oh, the, oh, the Gershwins, which was uh, uh, done by encore. Oh, of course, so I, yeah. I got to see it. Um, yeah. Uh, and Great then uh, one of the all time incredible classic greats, all the things you are from a Kern and Hammerstein show called Very Warm for May. In
1: 1964, there was uh, a poll of Broadway composers, people who were working on Broadway or had worked on Broadway, going all the way back to Otto Harbach, and said, what's the best song ever written for a Broadway musical? And that's the one that won All the Things You Are. It's, well, that, he, good. it's
2: mm, that good. It's that
1: good. Yeah. In fact, um, Kur uh, Lockhart um criticized us uh, for not mentioning it a, a few weeks ago. So um, I hope this is some soothing bomb for him that <laughs> you uh you did step up to the plate uh with this one. So um, yeah. The, the uh, um she was too good to me. He was too good to me. He was too good to me is what it was in the show. Right. I know it is. She was too good to me. Um, I think it's from simple Simon, um, a Roger than Hart show. I first came to know it. Ironically enough, this is so bizarre through the Kingston trio, the Kingston trio recorded this song every now and then they do a show song. They did the call to Win Mariah from paint your wagon. They did the shape mm. of things. Um, They did um, um, uh, Mary Minuet. I mean, every now and then they would take a show song, but who would expect a Rodgers and Hart song to be sung by the Kingston Trio? Um, But uh, that's where She Was Too Good To Me is where I first ran into it. And um, a lovely, lovely song. And, um, yeah... um, um the songs we wish we knew sure um the shows we wish we knew uh, um i can't do the sum from babes in toyland um i've never seen babes in toyland but uh that's a song that i i really very much like victor herbert's song but um you know a show that didn't work was grind and i wish it had i feel bad that um it didn't because um, I like the people involved with it uh, so much, so much, and you know it, it's so painful when there are people you like, and the Stokes. show just doesn't work. Uh, no, he wasn't in it. Um, Stokes wasn't in. Uh... I don't. I don't think so. I don't recall. No, Ben Vereen was in it, and um, um, Timothy Nolan and Leilani Jones, who won a Tony, and um, it was pre- um, directed by Harold Prince, and um, it was by uh, Larry Grossman, Ellen Fitzhugh. Ellen Fitzhugh is a much underrated lyricist. She's never really had the breaks, even though she's so good. And when the show was out of town in Baltimore, she had to go to her t- hotel room and write a new number for Stubby K and did called um, I Get Myself Out. And it really was a terrific song. It still is. And um, it, it deals with the fact that uh, here's a man whose career is declining. Um, he has a real problem because he, he has bad eyesight, and it's really affecting his vaudeville act, and, um, and he, talks, he tries to rationalize, saying, I've always had trouble in the past, but I always get myself up, and he talks about um, one time when there was a fire on stage, and the lyric is, the curtain went up. I mean, it really went up, meaning it went up in flames. You know, that is a terrific image, but not only is it a terrific image, but again, the pressure of writing out of town, and she comes up with that, I'm impressed. And so as a result, um, I'd like to go to bat for um, I get myself out.
0: Um, Peter, uh, I'm looking at grind on IBDB. And there's somebody named Oscar Stokes, who was Mike the Darkman. Ah! <laughs> and of course, that's who I was referring to. Oh, yes! I, was I not apologize. <laughs> I was not referring to Brian Stokes Mitchell. I apologize. It won't and happen I, again. I did not confuse Mel with Grind. <laughs> <I did. laughs> Do we have any good songs from <laughs> um, Mel?
2: I can't remember what. Isn't there one called A Black and a Jew? Is that right? Oh my goodness, really? Yeah. Is that
0: right? Wow. Wow. Mm. Look at this. Let's wow. see. Uh, mm. Not in... Oh.
1: Mail is the show for which um, Stokes won his Theater World Award. He was his Broadway debut. Yeah, well, that's what we, the yeah. World Award basically does. Yeah, I mean, not sure, always, yeah. but basically. Um, so... Um, so anyway, uh, so that's that's a really good one. Uh, back in 1961, there was a terrible musical called Let It Ride. Uh, the album's still available, mm-hmm. and um, it's a musical version of Three Men and a Horse, and that may not mean anything to anybody, but it's about a, a, a meek young man um, who um, – Writes the inside uh, verses in greeting cards. That's his job. And every day when he goes to the office, um, he looks at the uh, racing pages and he picks winners. And he's always right. He's always right. He never misses, but he never bets. Anyway, I forget how um, some rabid horse bettors uh, find out about him, but um, they are very happy to know him. And, of course, it's one of those things now that the pressure's on, he has trouble doing it when he was doing it for fun, he had no problem. Um, It takes a long time to get to the great song in this one. It's uh, the 11 o'clock number, not a snazzy number, but a very tender song called His Own Little Island. Really quite beautiful. And although George Goble, the guy who sings it, he was a TV star at the time, um, goes up much too high at the end uh, for and reaching for the note. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. And um, it really should be better known than it is. The song I was referring to from uh, Mail, the
2: title of it turns out to be The World Set on Fire by a Black and a
1: Jew. Wow. Wow. We ain't going to see a revival of that one anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm, how awful. Wow. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't recall the details of it. It was uh, a nice showcase for, uh, Michael Rupert and, and Stokes, but, uh, it, you know, um, I mean, I, it was acknowledging obviously their, uh, their differences in terms of ethnicity and race. And it was, uh, a a comedy number as I recall, but um I don't yeah, to your point, I'm yeah, I'm not sure if the comedy would work. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. have to see what Steven Suskin says about that. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Back in the uh early sixties, if you got the uh original pressing of Oliver On the back cover, there was a lot of information about uh, David Merrick. I mentioned this when we were talking about musicals that um, would be good musicals um, if they were adapted last week when we talked about Casablanca. And it was also mentioned that he was going to do a musical of Paul Gallico's novel, Mrs. Aris Goes to Paris, about a woman who really wants to um, go to France before she dies. And um, the musical never happened, but one song from it, uh, was recycled into the 1963 musical Jenny, which was thought to be um, one of the big hits of the season when it was announced because Mary Martin was going to be in it. And um, it didn't turn out that way at all. In fact, one of the most amazing things about it is all the scenery in the show. Was sold to a theater, a community theater, I think, in Cleveland for $2,000. Can you imagine? Oof. Anyway, big failure, um, only lasted a few months, but. Um Mary Martin has a lovely song in it, originally written for um, Mrs. Aris Goes to Paris called Before I Kiss the World Goodbye. Now, she didn't like the song all that much, not as much as I do. Um, She even had a problem with the lyric, thinking that one of the lyrics is dirty. I'm not going to tell you which lyric she thought was dirty, because I want you to hear the song and see if you can find anything in the song that you think is dirty. (laughs) I challenge you to do so. But anyway, that was her thing. And it's amazing, considering the fact that she was certainly uh, the big power behind the show, and her husband, of course, was um, co-producer with Cheryl Crawford, that it's really amazing that um, she wound up doing this song with the so-called dirty lyric, but it is on the cast album and it's called before I kiss the world. Goodbye. Beautiful song. I want to sing. I want to dance and have my fling in Paris, France. So there you have, um, the reference that, um, sort of indicates that it came from, uh, Mrs. Aris goes to Paris, uh, which, uh, became a TV movie with Angela Lansbury in that role. And, um, And so that's really quite nice. And recently there was another version of it that was produced in London on a completely different title. I don't remember what it was. But um, the idea of a woman wanting her last fling before she dies is certainly something that we can see very easily musicalized.
0: Hmm. Uh, Michael, anything else on your
2: list? Well, again, songs I love from shows I don't love. I could honestly say every song from Camelot except Take Me to the Fair and The Simple Joys of Maidenhood. (laughs) Uh, because i think that book for that show is really quite a mess and those two songs i don't like only because i think um that the uh learner and low had seemed to have had a big problem in uh their creation of the character of guinevere uh she really is portrayed as quite an awful person, I think, in both of those songs. Uh, but the rest of the score, I think, is quite wonderful overall. And it's it's um fascinating to me how those two were able to write what in my opinion is such an overall brilliant, excellent score for a show uh that is such a mess overall. Uh, that that's that doesn't that really doesn't happen too much. And obviously it's not a jukebox musical like Mamma Mia. So that doesn't apply. Um, a few others I wrote down, um, this song, uh, there's a room in my house from a family uh, affair. Uh, beautiful, mm, beautiful. We've, mm. I think we've discussed, um, uh, mama or rainbow from Minnie's boys, mm. which is not a, not a bad score by any means, but I, I can't really say that. I love the show overall. um, there's the case of the trunk song. So I don't know if this even counts once upon a time from all American, which, uh, Strauss and Adams did admit that, that they had written for a previous project. And, um, what else? Uh, I know Peter and I disagree, uh, on the overall quality of the musicalization of Rocky, but I do love, and I've always said that I love that first song that Adrian sings towards the beginning called raining. Just a very, very beautiful song.
1: I like, um, then you may take me to the fair because what's going on there is uh, Guinevere thinks that uh, Lancelot is a puffed up uh, braggart. And under those circumstances, she wants to see him taken down a peg, but, It's very interesting to me that so many times people who are attracted to people um, turn against them because they don't want to be attracted to these people. And that's going on in that number, too. So I think it's um, a strong number. And um, so anyway, um, if you've ever been to Prince Edward Island, Mm -hmm. P.E.I., and uh, went to the Charlottetown Festival any time in the last 50-plus years, you may have seen Anne of Green Gables. Uh, It's a musical they do all the time because, of course, Anne of Green Gables takes place in that part of the world. And it's actually a British musical, and there is a British cast album of uh, the songs. I don't know if they've... James, you seem to know what I'm talking about. Is there a a cast album of the actual Charlottetown production? Do you know?
0: I don't know if uh, there is one, but we actually uh, spoke to them on Broadway Radio a few years back.
1: Uh Uh-huh. They being, uh, the people who run the festival, the people who wrote the show. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh Uh-huh. So anyway, um, they do it every year and it's apparently successful. And every summer I say, this is the year I'm going to go. And then of course I never go. And I'm certainly not going this year, but anyway, um, I don't much like the score for all I'm promoting it. Um, but I do love where did the summer go to? So, um, try to find that on YouTube. Um, I don't think the uh, London cast album is easy to find. Speaking of London cast albums, I don't much like salad days and salad days has a very important place in musical theater history. Not so much for what it was, even though it was the longest running British musical for the longest time. It ran over 2000 performances in London, did fewer than a hundred, I think when it came here and then played off Broadway, it didn't even play Broadway, but it was an enormous success in London about, a piano that does magical things. That's what it's about. What do you want from me? Anyway, um, the thing is, that this was the first show that Cameron McIntosh saw as a little boy and said, whoa, I love this thing called musical theater. So uh, that we may not have had a lot of Cameron McIntosh productions uh, if indeed he hadn't gone to see Salad Days as a kid. Wow. So um, anyway, um, I, I, the score is um, in and out. But uh, we said we wouldn't look back about people who are um, seeing each other after a long, long time. Um, is one that I think is really quite a beautiful song and I enjoy it immeasurably. So we said we wouldn't look back is one that uh, you might want to look into. Hmm. All right. Uh, I'm going to wrap up here. Anything else
0: that you wanted to get in before uh, we wrap?
1: You know, I'm going to tell a story uh, uh, dealing with something we talked about, because I think it's a funny story. And it came up this week. It came up this week because um, a gentleman uh, contacted me out of the blue to talk about Camelot. Um, Hmm. And uh, what has happened, he has written a, a biography of Jacqueline Bouvier, Kennedy, Onassis, Uh, and um, he he wanted some information about Camelot, and that's why he contacted me. But anyway, I was reminded of the time that um, Theodore H. White came into the hotel where I was working. Theodore H. White is the man who interviewed Jackie Kennedy after the assassination and um, had the article in Life magazine talking with her. And so, what do you remember most about your husband? And one of the things she remembered was that indeed he loved the cast album of Camelot and he used to sing at the end, Don't Let It Be Forgot, Shining Moment, those lyrics. And uh, that became a big thing. And um, Alan J. Lerner in his uh, book, The Street Where I Live, talks about the fact that um, when he saw um, one of the tabloids having – Hit, that quoted that line from Camelot on the front page of the paper. He was so stunned that he he walked home and he walked past his his street where he actually did live <laughs> because he was so shocked at, at at seeing a lyric that he had written on the front page of the paper, especially in these amazingly troubled times as the nation had after the assassination. So, anyway, um, there's Theodore H. White coming in to check into the hotel, and I look at the name. And I look up at him and I said, are you the writer? And he said, yes. So pleased that somebody who (laughs) is still a teenager would know that he was uh, recognized the name as a writer. And, oh, I appeal to the younger generation. How wonderful. And I said, my God, are you the guy who wrote the book that Camelot is based on? And his face fell as he said, no, that's T.H. White. I'm a different guy. And he was terribly disappointed. And I feel bad that uh, I made him feel bad. Mm. But for one brief shining moment, I made him feel good. <laughs> End of story.
0: So uh, before we wrap up, uh, what, some of our listeners have added some, uh, some of their own uh, favorite songs from shows they might not love. Um, I'll never go there anymore from the uh, musical Kelly? flop Kelly. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking yeah. of that too. That's uh, Tony Janicky. and uh Tony also added uh How Do You Speak to an Angel from Hazel Flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh Rob Johnston added in uh Bart's Confession from uh getting the band back together. Um the uh, musical theater flop uh, from a few seasons ago, mm-hmm. uh, and Cheryl Hodges Selden wrote uh, "Michael in the Bathroom" from "Be More Chill," which uh-huh. uh, that that rings true to me mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, I know what's going to happen from Tootsie. Um, also, Cheryl added in there, so uh, some some good suggestions from our uh, our listeners as well. So uh, before we wrap up, I want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple uh, Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways you can listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in. Stitcher. Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Ratings offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
1: ahead no never turn yes it's into the fire we fly and the devil will burn someone has to face the valley rush in we have to